If you like weird history, true crime, haunted and paranormal, then pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a video component to our favorite Ghost Town episodes at youtube.com slash Jason Horton. Episodes like The Los Feliz Murder House, The Toxic Lady, The Black Dahlia, Janis Joplin's Hotel Room, The Haunted Roosevelt Hotel, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash Jason Horton. That's youtube.com slash J-A-S-O-N-H-O-R-T-O-N. And while you're there, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you. Given a certain degree of infamy, thanks to Charles Darwin, the Galapagos Islands are far less famous for their role in playing host to a tiny, isolated German expat community in the 1930s, living quietly, surrounded by the unending blue of the Pacific Ocean. The motley crew of settlers included a doctor with philosophical aspirations, a pregnant housewife, and an eccentric baroness bent on creating a hotel for millionaires, complete with her doting entourage of love interests. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the ideological disparate factions often failed to see eye to eye whilst they precariously shared the island's few natural springs, a situation that rose more than a few suspicions to those that watched on from the outside after a series of unexplained deaths and disappearances tore the quiet island life apart from the inside, leaving the survivors to shrink off into quiet obscurity. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 4. I'm Ben, as always. I hope this episode finds you well. This week we got another murder mystery coming up. Or, well, I suppose it's murder mystery. It's a little bit more than that. Um, it's, it's a bit of an odd, odd one, because normally I wouldn't do two episodes in a row that are kind of similar to genres. And this one is kind of similar to last week's episode, but somehow... As per usual, my my episode planning has gone completely out the window, and I'm I've I've started like you know doing whatever episodes I please in whatever order I want, and uh, somehow I've ended up with these two next to each other. But it is what it is. Uh, but with that said, let's crack straight on into it because it is quite a long one, uh, as always these days. I think that's becoming the norm. But yeah, so let's just get straight into it. This is called the Floriana Affair: Murder in Paradise. The Galapagos Archipelago, formed from a small cluster of volcanic islands, lies in the Pacific Ocean, 500 miles from Ecuador off the western coast of South America. Laying with islands on either side of the equator, it has a surprisingly diverse climate due to the Humboldt Current that flows north along the western coast of South America, bringing a cold water stream to the region. The warm season lasts for just over six months of the year, and brings long hours of sunlight with periodic tropical rain showers. On the flip side, the rest of the year is dominated by the cool season, which sees the islands, covered in shrubland, grassland and forests, shrouded in persistent, complete fog. Although they cover an area of 17,000 square miles of ocean and make up over 3,000 square miles of land, the archipelago is dominated by its 18 main islands, including Darwin Island, famously named after the naturalist, who visited the islands for five weeks as a geologist and his observations of the wildlife at the time went some way to developing his theory on evolution, which he later published in On the Origin of Species in 1859. The most populous island, Santa Cruz, lies in the centre of the island chain and hosts a population of around 16,000. 
Directly south of Santa Cruz, at the bottom of the archipelago, sits Floriana, circular in shape. In the 1920s, it was completely uninhabited, with only relics of those who had come before, a series of caves carved out of the volcanic rock by pirates, and a small tin shack sat deserted in the rather aptly named Post Office Bay, which was named after its curious mailbox, constructed from a barrel that had been painted white and hoisted upon a pole and had been used by seafarers, predominantly whalers, for hundreds of years, as outgoing ships would drop off their mail to be collected by inbound ships at a later date. By the 1920s, the island's caves have been long since deserted, and the only humans that sat foot on the island were passers-by dropping off or collecting mail and the occasional hunters from neighbouring islands, who would visit temporarily in order to hunt the prodigious stocks of wild cattle and boars that made the islands their home along with the flocks of flamingos. It was, for an adventurous, wannabe castaway, the perfect desert island paradise, at least on paper, which is exactly what a German doctor, tired of society, felt when he read about it in William Beebe's Galapagos World's End, published in 1924, that detailed the naturalist's 20-day expedition to the archipelago in a somewhat romantic style. To Dr. Ritter, the island was the answer to all of his life's woes, an opportunity to get away from the society that he found so problematic and a nice quiet retreat where he could author the many works of philosophy that rattled around inside his head. The problem was, he wasn't the only one to have read Beeb, nor was he the only one looking for answers. Germany, since the end of the First World War, had been becoming a progressively difficult place to live for many, especially those in the more rural areas of the country. The early 1920s had been the peak of what was an economic black hole, which had seen inflation rise to obscene numbers, requiring workers to be paid twice a day just to keep up with the exchange rate. Extremists on both the left and the right of the spectrum sought to capitalise on the widespread disapproval, with efforts to overthrow the government from both communists and national socialists only failing due to miscalculation and ineptitude rather than any successes from the sitting regime. Contrasting this, it was also a decade of growing importance amongst German culture and arts, with advancements in film paying off in the German expressionist movements, along with the worldwide fame of Bauhaus in architecture and design, and strong contingents in fashion, art and philosophy. Berlin was a prime example of the contrast in societal situation, with debilitating poverty living side by side with an emergent middle class and a comfortable upper class. Regardless of class, and despite the successes in arts and culture, discontent was still high in the streets, and there were many who went looking for escape once their sliding savings regained a semblance of fragile stability from the currency reform. Dr Friedrich Ritter was one such bourgeois malcontent. Short, with mousy brown hair and blue eyes, he had been born in 1886 in Volbach, Germany, in the heart of the Black Forest region. His father had a varied career as the Burgenmeister of the town, a farmer, storekeeper and carpenter, and Friedrich grew up in a reasonably stable environment, though he was known to have been sickly and struggled with school. He enjoyed forays into the countryside, fond as he was of animals, and he subsequently grew to hate the hunting trips that he would go on with his father. In later life, he went on to study chemistry, physics and philosophy at the University of Freiburg, moving into dentistry and medicine after he graduated. At the age of 20, he married an opera singer, Myla Clark, despite his parents' opposition to the pairing. 
His medical career was punctuated by the First World War, which saw him volunteer for the artillery and fight in the trenches, and though he survived the ordeal, like so many, he was left deeply scarred by the experience. He struggled on to complete his medical studies, and upon final graduation, moved to Berlin to open his own practice. It was during this period that he met Dora Strau, a patient suffering from multiple sclerosis who walked with a permanent limp at the Hydrotherapeutic Institute at the University of Berlin where Friedrich worked. Friedrich took an unorthodox approach to curing her illness, pressing the concept that it was all in the mind and that it could be overcome with just a little positive thinking. During her time as Friedrich's patient, the pair discussed Nietzschean philosophy together, a realm within which Friedrich was fully submerged, along with the Taoist works of the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, and he told her of how he intended to one day write his own philosophies down that would marry the two, if only he had the time and lack of distraction that such a task would require. The concept of a paradise found in solitude was another of their favourite discussions, and quickly the couple found a romantic plateau where their minds could recline together. At least, they found a subject which allowed Friedrich to lecture a wide-eyed Dora for hours on end about the ills of society and of how it ought to be fixed in a strange teacher-student type relationship that developed between the two. Dora herself had been looking for work as a trained teacher, but finding no jobs available, she instead took a job as a banker and enrolled in a night school in order to pursue a career in medicine. She had married a family friend, a school teacher almost twice her age, who she called a very grave, sedate man. She had hoped to make him young again, but was apparently failing and growing tired of her mission, and she now found their relationship at an unfulfilling dead end. Shortly after her discharge from the Hydrotherapeutic Institute, she enrolled as a patient of Friedrich at his own clinic, despite her husband's reluctance. Not one to kowtow to her husband's demands, Dora was a relatively modern thinker in domestic terms. Though her father was a schoolmaster, her parents had raised her with a strong degree of independence, and she now despised the unfulfilling life of a housewife and the expectations that a woman should exist for the comfort of a husband. Both wildly unhappy in their home relationships, Frederick and Dora began a series of secret liaisons that amounted to an affair lasting for two years, the time with which Friedrich spent researching for a place that they could escape to in order to find their coveted solitude. In the same year, William Beebe, an American naturalist, published his book, a lavishly illustrated documentation of his expedition to the Galapagos Islands, mixing science with romance, adventure, and brightly coloured illustrations of exotic flora and fauna. It quickly lit the imaginations of people around the world and became an international bestseller. Within its pages, Beebe gave a fairly detailed history of one of the least populated islands, known at the time as Charles Island, though now referred to by its Spanish name, Floriana. Despite the book painting a difficult picture and detailing fairly well the many failures by people who had visited with intent to colonise the volcanic island, Friedrich saw in it his future with Dora. The pair made their preparations and packed their things. Friedrich, preempting later problems, had all of his teeth pulled out, but also to satisfy his own curiosity on whether or not a human's gums would toughen enough to allow one to chew without teeth. In case his gums failed him, he packed a set of stainless steel false teeth of his own invention, which he would eventually go on to share with Dora for a period, as her own teeth gradually failed, and a second set of teeth were slow to arrive. The pair contrived a plan to shack up Dora's husband with Friedrich's wife 
in order to justify their leaving without any feelings of guilt, and once that small ordeal was out of the way, they shipped off from Amsterdam at 9pm on July 23, 1929, towards the Galapagos. As for the rest of the world, we rejoiced at leaving it behind. Civilization had no illusions for us. We had no interest in it, and the last thing we ever thought of was that it would ever take an interest in us. All that we both wanted was to be alone and to break free of the bonds of conventional life. We wanted to try and live a new way, with neither models nor preconceived ideas to help or rather hinder us. We wanted no advice and we took none. Our work of discovery, whether it would turn out to be great or small, was to be all our own. It was my conviction that Dr. Ritter's experiment as a way of life would lack validity without a woman. But would I, as a woman, be able to rise to these occasions, which I knew would come and be an acid test by which even two people who felt they belonged irrevocably together must prove the value of their relationship? For all the joy that filled me, I also felt a touch of fear. But I resolved that, come what might, I should be strong. After spending so much time reading about Floriana in such romantic terms, the reality must have been a strange realisation for Friedrich and Dora as they arrived on the island and they were finally confronted with the truth of their new home in the wilderness. Until now, they had only the images in their minds, gleaned from long hours spent hunched over books in a Berlin library with which to make their plans, and now they felt them decidedly inadequate. They had been escorted to the island of Floriana aboard a fishing boat named the Manuel Ecobos, skippered by a local fisherman, Captain Bruins, who operated out of the neighbouring Chatham Island. They were first dropped off at the island's most famous port of Post Office Bay. Staring up the beach, past the old wooden barrel that had been used for mail for so long, and up to the deserted shack, built from corrugated iron and surrounded by a small stone wall, that had been left behind by a small group of Norwegian settlers who had previously taken up on the island, but long since left. To the side of the shack, the faint outlines of a tennis and croquet court sat curiously forgotten, baking under the sun. The Ritters had hired a 14-year-old Indian boy from the boat named Hugo for a month in order to help them find their feet and get settled on the island. They unloaded their equipment and supplies onto the beach and took in their new surroundings. An atmosphere of extreme desolation enfolded this scene and was increased by almost completely dried up, lifeless vegetation round about it. It was impossible not to think, with a calm of fear, of all the disappointed hopes of our predecessors on this island, who probably had come here with confidence no less than ours that they would be able to make their lives according to their heart's desire. The first few days on the island were spent exploring and looking for a plot of land that would be amenable to a long-term residence. They spent the morning cutting their way through the underbush and dense vegetation, making their way towards the centre of the island, with only the vague guidance of rumours that at least one spring existed somewhere on the island. As they cut their way through the foliage, they eventually wound up on Floriana's second most common landscape, vast, sharp and desolate lava fields. The bursting lemon trees that had been so numerous gave way to sparse, erratic tufts of grass and shrub that sprung up from cracks in the sun-baked ground. With some effort, they continued their journey into the interior, which once again gave way to thick vegetation and lush forest. While scouting, they heard the crack of a gunshot, only to see Hugo carrying back the body of a boar. Unimpressed, Friedrich, who had decided to live on a vegetarian diet in accordance with his philosophical ideals, forbade the boy from hunting any more animals until he had made full use of the one that he'd already shot. 
They spent the first night of their exploration holed up in a small system of caves that had been chiselled directly into the volcanic rock centuries prior by an Irish pirate named Patrick Watkins. The caves were not so bad. Their beds were carved into the walls along with a fire pit and chimney. Shelter that they were, however, they were far from the desert island paradise that the Ritters had envisioned and they would not do for the long-term habitation. They got their head down for the night and looked forward to a second day of exploration and of what they might uncover. That night, the unfamiliar sounds of wild animals shifted all around them. The wild dogs which had been brought to the island in order to keep the goat population in check. Cattle and wild boars all scuttled about the foliage, their ancestors left behind by settlers who had left long ago. The next day proved to be far more successful. The group stumbled out from the caves and headed south only a short distance before they found the fabled spring, and not far from the spring they found a small clearing which they decided was a fitting spot for their future paradise, despite the protestations from Hugo who didn't think it was such a good spot. Pirates had lived here once before, calling it Casa Piedra and much murder had taken place on the grounds. Friedrich ignored the advice from Hugo, chalking it up to nonsense and superstition. The area was rocky for sure and would need to be cleared well, but it sat in a small crater of about an acre in size overlooking the bay below, 500 feet above sea level, and filled with tropical vegetation and a small spring, allowing Friedrich to assume that the ground would be amenable to his plans for a sustainable garden. With confidence, the pair pronounced it their new home and named it Frido, a portmanteau of Friedrich and Dora, and also encompassing Fried, the German word for peace. The next few days and weeks were particularly hard work. Friedrich and Dora could not afford to rest on their laurels, and Friedrich especially demanded that they work hard to establish their home, with their first task being to bring up all of their supplies from the bay up to the new home on Frido. This was made no easier after the pair stumbled upon a tree covered in nuts. Hugo warned them that on no account should they eat them, but they ate them anyway, immediately becoming violently sick. The sickness slowed down their advancements, but they eventually managed to carry all of their belongings up to Frido and began erecting a fence around their new home. Hugo had pointed out the many animal trails to them a few days prior, and it seemed that the spring attracted wildlife to the area in large numbers, a situation that would not do if they were to keep their garden in good health. They worked throughout the day in clearing enough space to begin their planting and slept at night in hammocks tied to acacia trees, and whilst it may sound something like the paradise that they had once imagined, it was not long before Dora began having misgivings and considered the possibility of leaving the island for home. A sense of desolation froze me to the soul. I felt that I should go mad with joy if any other living being should come into sight, even a cannibal, even a bloodthirsty buccaneer. I thought of all the stories we had heard of former settlers and wondered if, perhaps, some as yet unknown cave upon the island might harbour someone else who might now suddenly appear and rescue me. All kinds of wild and fantastic thoughts of this came to my mind, only to increase the despair with which I realised that there was no one, not a living soul, to help me. Dora's problems on the island were many, tasked with extremely hard labour of clearing the land around Frido, despite suffering with physical struggles and walking with a permanent limp, she was also working under the incredibly tough taskmaster of Friedrich, whose philosophies drove him to treat Dora in ways that some outsiders might call harsh and others may have called abuse. Enraptured by her almost godlike 
future-come lover, she wilted beneath his stern gaze as Friedrich consistently discarded her difficulties in order to teach her in the ways of fortitude. Over time, however, Dora pushed on and the little homestead started to resemble something the pair could call home. By October, their garden, planted in a design by Friedrich that fit with his philosophies, was beginning to show fruit and a group of Norwegian hunters who had stopped in on the island had promised to drop off some building materials the next time they were passing by. They were also gifted a rifle, some dynamite and a wheelbarrow which helped immensely with the job of clearing the volcanic rocks from the crater and by early 1930 they were fairly well established and able to eat from their Florian garden. Both Friedrich and Dora were sticking to a vegetarian diet that contained no grains which was down to Friedrich's belief that flower diseases were plaguing civilised society. For breakfast, they ate fresh fruit and vegetables, and then at midday alternated between a meal of two raw eggs, bananas and cane sugar sap, and a salty meal of raw greens, root vegetables and peanut butter. From time to time, they slipped from their strict vegetarianism, though Friedrich always managed to justify it in some way or another. Things were going well enough on Floriana, and then, one day in mid-May, the newspapers arrived on Frido, bringing with them something of a shock when the pair realised that they had somehow made it to the headlines back home in Germany, and then on across the world, where they were called two modern Robinson Crusoes. Ritter and his companion are both students of Schopenhauer and Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher who advocates exile from the distractions of a mechanised world. They affirm in their intention of carrying out their unique experiment and spending the rest of their lives on the island, though they admit that they get a bit depressed at times. Despite many of the pieces not painting island life in the most flattering of lights, Friedrich and Dora were concerned. Now that the name of their island was out there, they should expect more visitors. It didn't take long for this thought to then be proved right, and quite soon came the arrival of three young Germans who took up residence in Watkins Caves, though they just as quickly discovered that they were not cut out for island life and they left abruptly. An elderly German lady and a consumptive husband were next to arrive, though similarly, they too quickly concluded that island life was not for them and left after just one week. So far, Friedrich and Dora had been relatively lucky and able to keep their island to themselves, which was just the way they liked it. Friedrich grumbled about the visitors, calling them intruders, and refused to have anything to do with them. Dora, on the other hand, may not have said as much in front of the doctor, but in secret it seemed she longed for company and became quite disappointed that none of the visitors had been women of her age, nor decided to stay. One somewhat more permanent member on the island was Captain Brun, the fisherman who had dropped them off at the start of their journey. He had recommissioned the Norwegian's empty shack in Post Office Bay and turned it into a busy fishing enterprise, which had the secondary outcome of drawing sharks into the bay. Dora didn't hate this so much as she found his Danish partner to be most pleasing to the eye with more than usual good looks. Thankfully, things seemed to settle back down for a while, though they were now visited by more passing boats than before. However, this was not always such a bad thing as they almost always brought gifts and supplies which Frido desperately needed. As their first year on Floriana turned into their second, Friedrich built a more permanent house, utilising a wooden frame with corrugated iron sheets for a roof and large cuts of sailcloth for walls, and they used a piece of piping to funnel water directly from the spring into the kitchen. 
It was simple, but it was a step up from their previous home, which had been little more than a tent. Their garden continued to flourish, and Friedrich began writing articles to be sent home and printed in the press. It was, he assured the readers, not for want of fame, but to correct the details in the press that had painted them in a poor light in previous articles, such as the suggestion that the pair walked around naked at all times, an idea that Friedrich deemed preposterous. Dora, for her part, made friends with a pet donkey and named it Burro, which Friedrich did not approve of. However, for once, Dora accepted her supposed bailiffs in this department and continued to enjoy the animal's company all the same. Days passed into weeks and into months, with the only punctuations in time being marked by the arrival of pleasure cruisers and scientists who visited the island now and then. One such visitor was G. Allen Hancock, an American millionaire landowner who had bought up half of LA for a few pennies an acre long before it became Hollywood. On top of his land and property, he was involved in oil, banking and the railway network, as well as construction and farming. On the 2nd of January 1932, Hancock rolled up to the shores of Floriana aboard his boat, the Valero 3. Aboard the boat was a fully equipped laboratory which he used to fuel his interest in biological research setting out on expeditions to fill his free time. He landed on the island and visited Frido before inviting Friedrich and Dora aboard his ship for a dinner and music concert the following night. Upon their departure, Hancock adorned them with gifts including a kitchen stove, a shovel, steel traps, coffee, lamp oil, soap, flour, rice, chocolate, cooking oil and a Winchester rifle and ammunition. Friedrich was unimpressed that Dora was so happy to receive the small pleasures from civilization, such as chocolate and coffee, but equally as frustrated was Dora herself, who had already persuaded Friedrich from bringing a gun to the island, going against their plans as it did to live in harmony with the creatures. One last gift was that of flower seeds, which Dora was keen to grow in their garden. Once more, though, such frivolities rubbed Friedrich the wrong way, and he promptly pulled them from the ground at the first opportunity that he could, much to Dora's dismay. Secretly, she considered that he may have been jealous of the attention she gave to the flowers, and thought his attitude similar to how he hated her relationship with Burro the pet donkey. Naturally, she kept all of these thoughts to herself. The following August brought with it cooler weather, along with the arrival of the first new residents to the island that would make a more permanent fist of things. Heinz Wittmer was a middle-aged, respectable-looking German who had fought in the war and never truly recovered from the horrors that he had seen there. His wife, Margaret, was a relatively well-put-together housewife which disappointed Dora from the start. They had brought their 12-year-old son to the island in the hopes that the solitude and clean air would be helpful to his poor health as they had been unable to afford to house him in a sanatorium as the doctors back home had suggested. They decided to move to Floriana after reading Friedrich's accounts in the newspapers and much to his chagrin had thought the presence of Friedrich with his medical background a great boon as Margaret was currently pregnant. Friedrich resented this assumption from the start and to say that the two groups were not getting off on the best foot would be something of an understatement. Margaret thought that Friedrich was showing signs of homesickness with all his questions of Germany and Friedrich and Dora found the Wittmers rather simple, uninterested as they were in Friedrich's philosophies. In fact, the Wittmers soon proved to be quite different from the Ritters. If the Ritters were spiritual and philosophical about their move, the Wittmers were pragmatic and practical. Heinz was a keen hunter and happy to utilise the wild cattle on the island for hides, oil and sustenance. 
After a short stint at Watkins Caves, the family soon moved into a patch of land near a second spring, erecting a full-on wooden cabin complete with a chimney for smoking the meat that they had left over. It was, in comparison to Frido, a remarkably quickly built domestic paradise. Six weeks after the Wittmer's arrival, however, a third party dropped Floriana, and if the Wittmer's were a shock to Friedrich and Dora, then the group to arrive in October were heart-attack-inducing. The party was headed up by a young woman calling herself the Baroness, who paraded onto the island wearing riding breeches and boots with a revolver in her waistband and a riding whip in her hand. Hot on her heels were the rest of her party, three men named Robert Philipson, who the Baroness referred to as her husband, Rudolf Lorenz, a young man 30 years of age, though he looked much younger, and Felipe Valdiviso, an, e- an Ecuadorian whom Friedrich assumed was a hired hand from one of the neighbouring islands. As soon as they arrived, Friedrich and Dora noted their large amount of supplies piling up on the beach at Post Office Bay, which included ducks, cows, donkeys, pigeons, rabbits, turkeys, and curiously, a whole load of cement. Friedrich and Dora had been alerted to their presence on the island by Heinz Wittmer earlier that morning, when he came tearing into Frido, waving a stack of mail at them and shouting about a baroness. Much to Ritter's dismay, they found that all of their mail had been opened already and slowly they managed to coax some sense out of Heinz, enough at least to understand the situation. The day after they arrived, the Baroness's party strolled into Frido, with the Baroness herself riding in on the back of a donkey, immediately souring the meeting by demanding to see the spring and then washing her feet in the water. The Ritters also noted several strange things about the group. Despite the fact that the Baroness was apparently from Austria and Philipson and Lorenz were both German, all three spoke French and the relationship between all three was more than a little bizarre, with Lorenz acting like something of a servant to the Baroness. If this was a mere Baroness, she certainly behaved as though she were at least a queen. The most assiduous of her courtiers was the young German Wittmer had referred to. He now carefully helped her to dismount and without waiting for an invitation, pulled over one of our deck chairs and settled her solicitously in it. That night, the new party stayed over at Frido, and the Baroness kept everyone awake all night by coughing loudly until Dora offered a new blanket. After they left the next morning, Dora wasted no time in voicing her misgivings about the Baroness and her unusual party. There was something about all this that disturbed us painfully. It was in one way so trivial and theatrical and frivolous, and in another way, so sinister, I felt a misgiving and a revulsion that was close to fear. Friedrich, almost to my surprise, this time showed sympathy and understanding for my human weakness and heartened me. In any case, he said, we can only wait and see. And they would not be waiting too long. After thoroughly unimpressing the Ritters, the Baroness next paid a visit to the Wittmers, where she unleashed her master plan to them. She'd already given the same story to an Ecuadorian newspaper in attempts to rustle up interest in her venture. Not just a mere visitor or even resident, the Baroness planned to build a hotel on the island named the Hacienda Paradiso that would cater to the mega-rich pleasure cruisers who visited the island. As if to intentionally make matters worse, the Baroness then decided to pitch her flag in the ground right on the Wittmer's garden, declaring that she now intended to use their spring. Land on Floriana was not bought and sold by the Ecuadorian government and the settlers on the island had, for many years, simply respected the space of one another, but the Baroness was not interested in tradition. In the weeks that followed, she went even further to lay out her assumed position on the island when she took hostage a supply of rice that had been intended for the Wittmers and attempted to charge him triple the value for it. 
as well as declaring to a party of hunters that the island now belonged to her, and if they wished to hunt her animals, then they must pay for the privilege. After the hunters promptly ignored this absurd statement and cracked on with their hunt, the Baroness flew into a rage, brandishing her revolver in the air and threatening to shoot them unless they paid her for their kills. It was, safe to say, a concerning introduction to the island, and Friedrich wasted no time in contacting the Ecuadorian government in an attempt to shut her down at the earliest opportunity. I feel it is my duty as a physician and a man to communicate to you the following. A woman with some men came to visit us, introducing herself as the Baroness. They stayed one night in our house, and the conduct of the lady was not that of a Baroness, but of a servant who imagines herself to be a princess. A week later, she sent me a copy of El Telegrafo, translating the article regarding the Baroness and her men. I perceived that the newspapermen have been victims of a terrible joke played on them by a woman in the early stages of paralysis cerebri. I have not examined the woman, but all that I have heard of her confirms my suspicions of a spiritual confusion in the way of megalomania. The adventures of Mr. Estampa shows that this woman is gifted for all crimes. But at this point, the joke ends, and the responsibility of the magistrate begins. It would be an ineradicable disgrace to the Ecuadorian government not to realise the crimes of which the woman is capable, who in her megalomania may take seriously her illusion that the whole island is her own property. Therefore, I ask you to take the proper measures to put this crazy woman under observation in a sanitarium. I have been told that this woman reads all the letters which are left to us in Post Office Bay. Therefore, I ask that you put our letters in the play of Pietra or entrust them to other persons for us. The Baroness was in fact proven to be quite the publicist. Not content in simply advertising her imaginary hotel, which was, by now, beginning to take shape from sheets of corrugated iron, but she also wrote to the press to feed them stories about how she was in the possession of an old map that had put her on the trail of Captain Morgan's lost treasure somewhere in the Galapagos. They were, of course, nothing but wild rumours and fiction, but presumably the Baroness thought that these adventure stories would do well, keeping her in the public eye and promoting the Hacienda Paradiso to her target market in America. In response to their neighbour's hastily built corrugated iron hotel, the Vitmers strung a barbed wire fence around their own garden mainly in order to keep wild animals from their crops, but it did have the secondary effect of separating his own land from the Baroness's. Heinz Wittmer also busied himself with the rebuilding of his home, erecting a full-on log cabin complete with stone foundations, fireplaces, separate rooms and chimneys for smoking meat. That Christmas also saw the delivery of Margaret's second child, a son they named Rolf, the first native of Floriana. The birth of Rolf did seem to have a calming effect on all three factions on the island and they all came together over the new year to give the new baby gifts. Even the Baroness saw it fit to offer the Vitmers a gift of a dress for the baby and when Dora planted a new bed of flowers in the garden at Frido, Frederick for once did not complain. The only person on the island who did not seem in good spirits that January was Rudolf Lorenz, the young German servant of the Baroness, who for some time had been airing his grievances of being treated like a slave to the Wittmers in private. Now, after months of being pushed into hard labour by Valdiviso, who it seemed was acting as the foreman for the hotel's construction, was looking more and more sickly by the day. Keen to learn more of the Baroness, the Wittmers had used their association with Lorenz to not only comfort the young man in his distress, but also to question him on his mistress. She was, he told them, a former business partner of himself. 
the pair had run a store in Paris named Antoinette, with the Baroness taking care of the financial books. Eventually, the store was run into the ground and closed due to bankruptcy. Lorenz was quite sure that, despite her claims to have been from a family of wealthy Austrian officials, she had truly learnt her mannerisms from movies and called her a fine actress. This view of the Baroness from Lorenz was fairly revealing, but explained to the Wittmers some of the more peculiar tidbits they picked up from the Baroness herself about her past, such as her claims to have been a spy during the First World War and to have married a wealthy French airman whom she had taken her name from, Eloise Baroness Wagner de Bosquet. These stories were actually reasonably plausible compared to some of the claims that she would make later to the wealthy visitors of the islands, such as her relationship with Franz Liszt and Richard Wagner, who she told people were her uncles. The excursions to the Wittmers by Lorenz were not overlooked by the Baroness, who, sensing his grievances, barred the young German from visiting both the Wittmers and Friedo. She also took to locking up his possessions in a cupboard and at one point banished him down to the Norwegian's empty shack on Post Office Bay after he had fallen ill. Thankfully for Lorenz, Valdiviso's contract was up in January of 1933, and he left the island aboard Hancock's Valero 3, which had returned to visit the island during its latest expedition in order to drop off supplies and for Hancock to meet the Baroness. The visit caused much fuss throughout the island's residence, with much fighting over the usual gifts, and much to Friedrich, Dora and Wittmer's alarm, the Baroness placed an order with Hancock, who had found her positively charming, for 400 sheets of corrugated iron and 40 window panes, with which she planned to expand the Hacienda Paradiso. A similar occurrence happened in May, when the Ecuadorian governor arrived on the island to follow up on Friedrich's letters about the Baroness. Quite different from placing her in a sanitarium, as Friedrich had suggested, the governor instead gifted her four miles of land for her hotel project, and insisted to the Ritters and Wittmers that they must share their springs with her. Before leaving, he also invited the Baroness to holiday with him on the neighbouring Chatham Island. The fact that he'd stayed the night at the Hacienda Paradiso and that the other residents of the island had already suspected her to be sex-mad, the insinuations made by Dora the next day that she had done more than simply charm the governor with words was very plain. That summer season on Floriana was the toughest yet for all the residents. A long-running drought was punishing them by drying up the springs and parching their gardens, baking the ground under the hot sun. Tensions were running high across all factions and were made no better when Burro, Dora's prized donkey, went missing on several occasions. It eventually wound up straying into the Wittmer's garden one night and Heinz, who had been waging a long-running war with the wildlife over his property, had shot the donkey on sight. Alarmed at what he had done once he'd realised the truth, he confessed the act to Dora, who felt sure that the donkey had been lured into the Wittmer's garden by the Baroness. Meanwhile, back in the Hacienda Paradiso, the Baroness had kicked out Lorenz, who, tired of being beaten by Philipson, had sought refuge at the Wittmer's house, who had taken the young German in, after he had been turned away from Friedo, where Frederick and Dora had rejected his pleas due to not wanting to raise the ire of the Baroness any further. Amongst all of this craziness, Hancock had returned, this time bringing with him the Hollywood actor, director, producer and writer Emery Johnson. The pair had decided to cast the Baroness in a silent film with her playing the role of a pirate empress, the results of which are about as crazy as this whole story sounds so far. 
In the week after Lorenz moved out of the Hacienda Paradiso, the Baroness came to check on him daily at the Wittmers, calling for him to go for a walk, and when he would return, Margaret said he would sit in the corner and cry to himself for several hours. This continued for about a week until the 26th, when Margaret and Lorenz stopped into Frido to tell Friedrich and Dora a very strange tale. Earlier that day, the Baroness had come to the Wittmers' house in order to see Lorenz as usual. However, Margaret informed her that he was currently away from the home hunting with Heinz. The Baroness had then gone on to tell Margaret that some friends had visited the island on a yacht and invited her and Philipson off on a cruise to Tahiti. She asked Margaret to pass this message on to Lorenz and asked him to look after her things in the Hacienda Paradiso in case of her return. Friedrich, Lorenz and Heinz visited the hotel and Lorenz immediately started divvying up all of the Baroness's possessions in order to raise money to leave the island. And as it turned out, she'd left behind quite a lot. In fact, it appeared as though she'd left behind almost everything, including her hat, her family photos and her copy of The Picture of Dorian Gray which was practically a lucky charm that she was said to have carried with her everywhere she went. Hines was happy to buy the corrugated iron that the hotel was built out of and used it as a roof for his new house. At least, this is the story as far as was officially given in a joint statement made by Hines Wittmer and Dora aboard the Valero 3 with Hancock as their witness several months later, for the Baroness did not return. In fact, no one ever saw the Baroness again. With the disappearance of the Baroness, life on the island quietened down somewhat. Though wealthy visitors did stop in to see her still, the Wittmers or Friedrich and Dora would tell them the same story, that the Baroness had set off aboard a yacht in the direction of Tahiti. April brought with it both the rains that would put an end to the long-running drought on the island, and a visit from Rolf Blomberg, a wealthy writer who had been exploring the Galapagos. After hearing Lorenz's plight, he agreed to take him off the island in order that he might able to catch a ride home to Germany from the neighbouring Chatham Island. When they arrived on Santa Cruz, Lorenz begged the captain of the ship to continue straight on to Chatham as he was afraid of missing his connecting boat. The weather had not been favourable, however, and the seas were rough and choppy, and so the captain denied the request, preferring to wait until morning. Lorenz started tossing his money about in desperation, offering the captain a fistful of cash in order to leave right away and so, reluctantly, they sailed for Chatham. It was, unfortunately, Lorenz's desperation that would get the better of him, as the pair were never seen alive again. Several months later, in mid-November, the mummified corpses of Lorenz and the Norwegian captain were discovered on Marshana Island by a crew of tuna fishermen. There was no sign of their boat, which appeared to have sunk. The young German had eventually managed to escape the Galapagos, but not quite in the same sense as he would have hoped. The same week that Lorenz's body was being reported on in the international press, Dora ran into the Wittmer's garden calling out for help. Friedrich had eaten some poisoned chicken and was gravely ill. Heinz and Margaret accompanied her back to Friedo, however, by the time that they arrived, Friedrich was already looking in a terrible condition. His tongue had swollen and he was unable to move, struggling to breathe and seemingly in a great deal of pain, though he refused any morphine. Dora told the Wittmers that the previous day Friedrich had opened a jar of pork meat that had gone bad and had fed it to the chickens, who promptly died. Not wanting to waste them, he assured Dora that if they boiled the bodies of the chickens enough, then the toxins would be removed and the chickens would be safe to eat. Apparently, Dora had failed to boil them quite enough. 
Margaret thought that Friedrich was showing a certain degree of animosity towards Dora, flinching as if to punch or kick her whenever she drew close to him on the bed, and this sense was more or less confirmed in his parting words. As he lay on the bed dying, Friedrich scribbled one sentence onto a piece of paper. I curse you with my dying breath. Heinz and his son buried Friedrich in a grave on Floriana, fashioning a small wooden cross for a headstone. Dora chose not to attend the burial. Captain Hancock arrived at Floriana on the 4th of December, this time hoping to aid in the formal identification of Rudolf Lorenz and to investigate the rumours of the Baroness's disappearance. He was shocked then to hear that he could chalk up another death to the rising toll when Dora told him of Friedrich's passing. Hancock informed the Associated Press and within days, sensationalist accounts of the story were winding their way into newspapers across the world. Ritter, Galapagos nudist, dies without telling orgy secrets. US scientists solve death mystery, but Baroness eludes them. Sudden death of a world-famed nudist, solution of an equatorial death mystery, and the strange disappearance of a baroness empress was the news flashed from one of the world's loneliest islands today by a party of Smithsonian scientists. Captain G. Alan Hancock, master owner of the exploration cruiser Fleero 3, found the maze of mysteries, tragedy and adventure when his scientific party landed on the old convict isle of Charles, 500 miles off the coast of Ecuador. Dr. Friedrich Ritter, self-exiled Berlin philosopher and raw food faddist, who during his six years on the Lonely Island regarded Captain Hancock as his most intimate friend back in civilization, died from a paralytic stroke November 21st. The equatorial death mystery of waterless Marshana Island, where two mummified bodies were seen on November the 17th by a tuna clippers crew, was found by Captain Hancock to be a triple tragedy. He identified two victims as Rudolf Lorenz, former Parisian of Charles Island, and Trigva Nugrud, Norwegian sailor of Chatham Island. The other was Nugrud's Negro boy helper, whose body had not been found. The strange baroness, Eloise Bosquet de Wagner, who Dr. Ritter had written Captain Hancock, held a clue to the strange drama, mysteriously left the islands July the 5th with Robert Philipson. Not a word has been heard from the couple for five months. Shortly before she vanished, Captain Hancock reported she drove Lorenz from Charles Island, of which she was the self-styled Empress. His pleas of food and water were refused by the Baroness. Without supplies, the Lorenz, Nugarud and the Negro boy sailed in the Norwegian's launch for Chatham Island, 50 miles south from Charles. Storms and probably engine trouble drove them 100 miles to the north, where their bodies were found on the barren, waterless islands of Marshana. Important pages in the tragic story were left blank by the disappearance of the Empress and the death of Dr. Ritter, his mind surging with the turmoil of the isolated island where he had sought peace six years ago. The former Berlin dental student died 15 days ago. Hancock stayed on the island for a few more days, acting as journalist to the world's press, before departing, along with Dora, on the 7th of December. Dora was intending to return to Germany, leaving the Wittmers in charge of Frido, who now found themselves alone on Floriana. While she was aboard the ship, she refused to speak about her time on Floriana, though rumours quickly sparked through the crew that her relationship with Friedrich had slowly turned sour. As the doctors grew more abusive towards Dora, she eventually snapped and killed the doctor and was now fleeing the island. There was also a second rumour swirling that Friedrich himself had had a hand in the murder of the Baroness. All the talk 
led to the Valero III returning to Floriana to get a joint testimony signed by both Heinz Wittmer and Dora, straightening the story out to that of the original, that the Baroness up and left aboard a yacht much to everyone's surprise. The governor of the Galapagos undertook an official investigation into Friedrich's death, questioning Dora with the aid of an interpreter. Dora, who spoke in German, had her answers translated to Spanish for the governor. However, the translator later admitted to leaving out a good deal of information in order to get Dora back aboard the Valero and home to Germany. Shortly after, the death certificate for Friedrich was signed and stamped and the matter officially put to bed. Dora arrived back in Germany and later wrote her own account of her time on Floriana, though it's a fanciful version of events in the extreme. She never did manage to get Friedrich's books of philosophy published, though perhaps this was for the best. Waldo Schmidt, an American biologist who had been acquainted with the doctor during an expedition to the islands, said unsurprisingly that Ritter's book is of theosophical leanings, but it is the type of theosophical writing that no one cares to read after seeing a first page or two. Dora passed away in Berlin in 1942. On the 2nd of December, the governor of the Galapagos arrived on Floriana with an armed escort to investigate the Wittmers. Before his death, Friedrich had written an article in an Ecuadorian newspaper accusing Heinz Wittmer of murdering the Baroness. However, after having an amiable lunch with the Wittmers, the governor left satisfied with their story that she had boarded a yacht for Tahiti. Shortly after this, Margaret sailed to Germany for a holiday, returning to Floriana a year later in January of 1936. The Wittmers lived out the rest of their days alone on the island. They had a third child, a daughter in 1937, and in 1938 were visited by the American president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who privately tried to ply information on the Baroness from them, though he found that they were not interested in talking, even to the president of the United States. Heinz Wittmer passed away in 1963, outliving the first Wittmer child, Harry, by nearly 15 years, after he had drowned in 1951. Margaret Wittmer remained on the island until her death in 2000. If the Wittmers ever knew more about the deaths and disappearances than they told anyone publicly, then they took it to their graves, leaving the mysteries of Floriana to continue off into obscurity. The story of the Floriana affair is bizarre in the extreme, full of huge egos and bombastic characters. Perhaps one of the most peculiar outcomes of the entire thing, however, is the speed at which the inquiries into the deaths and disappearances were officially wrapped up, with very little investigation taking place at all. If we are to believe Dora's words in her book that there had been murder on Floriana, then it is a guarantee that there had been at least two murders that had taken place, that of the Baroness and of Philipson, but the death of Friedrich left a lot to be explained as well, though both events were signed off and forgotten about with very little in the way of official pomp or ceremony and the story is left an open-ended tale of mystery. At the very least, it's probably safe to assume that Lorenz's death seems to have been an unfortunate accident, but the same cannot be said for the Baroness, Philipson and Friedrich. Maybe the Baroness really did catch a passing boat and, and disappear into anonymity, but it seems hard to reconcile that idea with what we know of her enjoyment of the spotlight on Floriana. The Ritters also claimed that they had not seen any boat approaching Floriana from their position overlooking the bay on the day of the Baroness was said to have been visited by the passing yacht. And of course, there is the outcome that nothing was ever heard from her again. So where did she go? There was no search made for her at all by the island residents, who all appeared to accept her story, despite Friedrich believing at one time 
that she may have committed suicide. Why was Lorenz so happy to quickly sell her belongings, many of which surely would not have been left behind by someone who had the time to pack a bag or two before departing? Was he just desperate to get off the island and saw a window of opportunity, or did he know for sure that the Baroness would not be returning? When considering who would have wanted to kill the Baroness, one can quite quickly find a motive for every single member of the island's residency. Lorenz seems like the most likely suspect. The Baroness may have been an annoying neighbour to Frido and the Wittmers, but to Lorenz she was a constant menace, physically beating him and reducing him to a sickly, injured, mentally broken wreck. His weak physical condition, however, was fairly well documented, and it seems unlikely he would have had the strength to overpower two grown adults, one who was known to brandish a revolver. The Wittmers seemed like the most likely accomplices to Lorenz, since they had taken the German in, as well as their public and well-documented hatred for their unwanted neighbours. Shortly before her disappearance, Heinz was said to have shot off on a rage concerning the Baroness's behaviour and shouted to Friedrich that the law would have to be taken into their own hands. The Wittmers, however, did go through investigations, both by the governor of the Galapagos and by the German consulate, following both accusations from Friedrich and rumours around the islands emerging from the other side without a mark against them. Friedrich, on the other hand, dead as he was, avoided any such investigation and was well known to have hated the Baroness. His story was muddled and inconsistent at best, at one point or another publicly stating that he believed her to have gone away on a ship, committed suicide and to have been killed by Heinz Wittmer. On the other hand, there exists photos of the two seemingly smiling at one another in a friendly embrace. Was it all a happy facade for the cameras or was there a more complicated relationship between the two? Furthermore, Shortly after her disappearance, and when Friedrich supposedly believed her to have committed suicide, he wrote a letter to Captain Hancock saying that he feared for a bullet from the bush, which would not make any sense if he did not think there had been a killer. Even if we assume that foul play had been involved in the disappearances of the Baroness and Philipson, then where were the bodies dumped? The abandoned eastern side of the island saw almost no visitors and would have made for a quiet gravesite, or failing that, the sharks in the bay certainly have been put to use. And then there is the death of Friedrich himself. Can we take Dora's story for fact without asking any questions? Why was Dora not more sick if they had both eaten the poisoned chicken? And why had she waited for such a long time until it was far too late for any help before she contacted the Wittmers about his sickness? And why had Friedrich's final message been one of such hate? Judging his symptoms from the account of the Wittmers, they seem to have been consistent with food poisoning. However, Dora's account of Friedrich's death in her book makes no mention of any spoiled food and instead chalks it up to a stroke, completely contrary to any other account. In fact, Dora's account of his death is almost entirely fictional and either an intense display of denial or complete fantasy in an effort to portray his death as something far more noble and dignified. There is, of course, the obvious accusation following the rumours that Dora had poisoned Friedrich that their relationship had deteriorated so far and harboured such a level of resentment that Dora, impulsive as she was known to be, took it upon herself to poison her lover. This would have certainly gone some way to explain many of the questions that surrounded the curious deathbed scenes and would fall in line with all the rumours that quickly erupted from the island that her and Friedrich's relationship had long since turned abusive and difficult for some time before his death. On the flip side, there is the other potentiality, that Dora did poison Friedrich, however, It was entirely accidental. Had she just failed to boil the poisoned chicken for a sufficient amount of time 
leaving the poison present in the meat. These are, of course, with every member of the island who was alive at the time now sadly having passed away, all questions which stand almost no chance of ever being answered. The Floriana affair, like so many stories told on dark histories, winds up shrouded in speculation, confusion and the dusty yellowing veil of time obscuring the facts, retrieved for a short time from obscurity where it inevitably will return. So that was the Floriana affair, about as convoluted a web of lies and deceit and confusion as there's ever been on dark history. So we'll talk a little bit about that and try and unpack some of it after these short adverts. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. If you like true crime, dark history, the haunted and paranormal, then we think you'll like Ghost Town. Ghost Town is hosted by me, Rebecca Lieb. And me, Jason Horton. We cover both notorious and obscure true crimes. The haunted, paranormal, and unexplained. And the dark history of everything from world events to pop culture. There are new episodes of Ghost Town every Wednesday and Friday. Find out for yourself what Vulture.com called essential listening and one listener called a total waste of time. So pause the podcast you're listening to right now. And go subscribe to Ghost Town for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And at ghosttownpod.com. Breaks. Welcome back. So that was a really confusing story. Um, Massively difficult to untangle and and try and fit into like a a one-hour episode. So I definitely recommend... If you would like to know more about this, um, there, there is a few books written about it. There's also a documentary that, that's all right, actually. Um, the the documentary, I think, I think they're basically all sort of called the same thing. Dora wrote a book called Satan Came to England, a survivor's account of the Galapagos affair. Um, I, I don't really recommend that if you're only going to read one book, although it is a really enlightening book on the story. It's very, very much through the lens of Dora. So it's almost entirely sort of fictional. I mean, it's maybe you don't have to go that far, but but it's definitely uh, her like filtered version of events. Uh, and there are a, a lot of things that say like, that are heavily filtered out from that. Um, a, a better book is um, by a guy called John Traherne. I, I don't know if that's how you say his name. Um, came out in 1983 and that's just called The Galapagos Affair. Um, and that, all, all of these books are in, in the sources anyway, which are in the show notes. But I definitely recommend that one if that was to be the book, one book you'd read. Um, and also, I say that there is a documentary. It's a couple of hours long, like a feature-length documentary. Um, and it is quite good. And I think that's called Satan Came to Eden as well. 
and it is quite good actually i quite enjoyed it it's not it doesn't it's quite a balanced view of the whole thing so yeah i'd recommend watching that as well if you want but again like it's really you need to read at least the book by john Trahan to rework like really get to the nitty-gritty i one thing i think i found with the documentary is it, it skimmed over friedrich quite a lot who's a character that i found quite problematic if i'm going to be honest i found that he was just beyond pretentious he was ridiculous i mean he made special shoes for him and dora to wear whilst they were still in germany right so this is before they even got to the island and they have to have dodgy shoes but he did this because he rejected the idea of proper human footwear and that's a direct quote i mean how self-important pretentious do you have to be his his kind of philosophies and stuff were very nonsense basically and and he was a just a spiteful mean vindictive man and it seems to me and and you have to be careful when you make these claims and stuff and 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 you know you've got to be a bit careful about what you're saying but he seems very abusive to me um towards dora i mean he basically trod her into the ground and then fairly sort of psychologically abused her i would say um and and i suppose that sort of draws us on to whether or not she killed him which is that you know the rumors and i i'm willing to believe that they, she probably did in all honesty um i i, I do think there, there's a bit there, there's quite a lot of suspicion around that and and what's really interesting is um the the interpreter when she was being interviewed by the governor he left out a lot of the information just in order to kind of get the inquiry done and get her back on the boat and, and back to Germany as quickly as possible. And that's because the people on board the Valero, the three, um, the Valero boat, um, Hancock and such, and they were basically on her side after hearing her story. And I think the story that they would have heard was probably that Friedrich was abusive and their relationship had gone to hell and... And and I think she probably snapped and and killed, bumped him off. Wouldn't surprise me at all because I would say that he was being abusive, even when she thought he was being brilliant. At the very least, you can say he was being mean spirited and spiteful towards her, and even somewhat resentful. It seemed to me, and she thought he was doing great. If that's the case, then when their relationship went bad, I can. I, I'm absolutely sure he would have been really horrible to her. So yeah, I, I I can kind of go along with that. I think that's actually the easy part of this whole thing to work out. I think she definitely bumped off Friedrich. The Baroness one is slightly more difficult because then you look at that and you think, oh, you know, obviously it was Lorenz, right? That's the, the obvious answer because Lorenz, again, was being like heavily abused by pretty much everyone in the Hacienda Paradiso. So you think, right, it's bound to have been him. But he was really unwell and apparently like really sickly and weak. I don't think he would have been able to physically take on the Baroness and Phillips and it doesn't make much sense to me. Um, Hines, on the other hand, seems very capable. He was like basically an adventurer. He built their house. He was hunting on the island. You know, he'd been on the island a long time then working with his hands and like doing a lot of physical exercise every day. He would have been in some shape, I think. And, uh, you know, he profited out of it because he got all the corrugated iron for his new house. So, you know, to me, I, I would be pointing my finger towards the Fitmers, which are really interesting because they're the ones that ended up on the island by themselves, happy as Larry, 
But there is a lot of suspicion on it being Friedrich. Um, Friedrich did um, point to the Wittmers and say that it, he thought it was Heinz. He accused Heinz of doing it, of killing the, the Baroness at one point. But there is a lot, a lot, a lot of suspicion that falls on Friedrich and Dora, at least on Friedrich and Dora sort of being a, a knowing accomplice. And, and that gets quite confusing. And it, it, it comes down to the fact that their statements don't really match up between, or at first, the statements between Dora and Margaret didn't match up at all. But then their stories were later changed and, and what was given officially did. So, it, you know, there, there is some suspicion on Friedrich there as well. But, you know, as far as the official story goes, you know, it was all just wrapped up very fast. And to me, that just screams that the governor was basically just thinking, you know, out of sight, out of mind, I don't really care. Basically, everyone had left. It was only the Vitmers on the island. Why bother creating a fuss? Just, you know, sign off the death warrant, uh, the death certificates and be done with it. You know, like I say, like out of sight, out of mind. I think, to be honest, as far as the governor was concerned... He didn't really care. He just wanted, you know, to do as least work as possible and get on with his day. That's my impression. I just think, you know, he probably looked at it and thought, bunch of foreigners, why do I care? You know, as long as they're not on my island anymore, I'm not fussed. So I think he just more or less signed off on it quickly and and basically everyone got away without having too much scrutiny. And I, and I think that's probably where the answers would have lied if they had have done a proper investigation. And I think, yeah, I think you would have seen in my opinion, probably Heinz would have come up as a, the accomplice to Lorenz. I think it would have been Heinz, Wittmer and Lorenz that done the Baroness and Philipson because I, I definitely think they were, they were well, almost undeniably they were, they were killed. Um, so that, that, yeah, that's that's my thoughts. I don't know your own thoughts. If you've got any, you can get in touch with me uh, at contact.darkhistories.com the email that's also in the show notes with all the other ways that you can contact me um across all social media like twitter instagram facebook um if you would like to follow me on any of those that would be great i'm trying to kind of boost the instagram at the moment so if you can find me on there which is dark underscore histories give us a follow that'd be cool if you'd also like to leave a review that would be cool um and all of the ways that you can um get in touch with me i say it's all in the show notes or on darkhistories.com which is has all the links to everything, including all of the social media, the email um, and the merchandise store and the books. And if you want to support in any way, if you'd like to do so, you may do that. There's Patreon, things like that. There's yet a bunch of uh, uh, bonus content, um, like years of bonus posts now and ad-free episodes. So yeah, if you'd like to support, you can. Of course, you're absolutely under no obligation to do so. So anyway, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Um, back again in a couple of weeks with the next one. That is not going to be a murder mystery. I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care. Sleep tight.
thanks very much for listening. That's the end of this episode. It's um, 